Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. But this week we're going to, the title of the message this week is Everything We Need. Everything We Need. And so we're going to be spending the most of our time, the majority of our time, scripture-wise, in Philippians chapter 4. And so before we get there, what I want to do is I want to lay a little bit of groundwork uh, historically and biblically about what's happening before we get to what Paul writes to the church in Philippi, okay? So um, I'm going to take a few minutes to kind of explain a couple things from that end and then get into the part that I really feel impressed this week that the Lord has for us as a community and a body of believers. I'm, I, I think this message may pertain to the body, the body of Christ as a whole and people in general, but I think specifically it's something that'll pertain to the people in this room um, just because I, I, I kind of sense that burden from the Lord. And so, so um, if you, everybody have notes? Everybody got them? Okay, good. Great. <clears throat> Thank you guys for passing them out. All right. So the book of Philippians was not written to Philip, right? Like it was written to the church of Philippi. That's the first line on your notes there. P, I'll spell it for you because I always got it wrong and my spell check kept correcting me. P-H-I-L, one L, I. PP, two P's and an I, Philippi, there you go. So the, the book of Philippians is written to the church in Philippi, which was located in the northern area of Greece. So if you're a geography person, you can Google map it later and find it on the map. Just northern part of Greece, you'll find something today that's called northern Macedonia, and somewhere in that area right there will be Philippi. Philippi was named, a little jeopardy for you here, a little jeopardy answer for you. The, name, the city of Philippi was named after Philip of Macedonia, he was the father of Alexander the Great. Interesting. I thought it was interesting, too, so I brought it to you. Um, and so the city of Philippi was actually a Roman colony that was outside of the empire. Many of the people that the, Romans, the Roman uh, empire sent there to colonize it were former military uh, officers and personnel. So there was a, quite a bit of a Roman military presence there. And so uh, one of the things that, um, that the Roman Empire over its about 400-year reign over most of the, kind of as the, the known superpower of the, of the world during that time, is they, were, they became very good road builders. And so the next line of your notes there is the Romans were master road builders. <coughs> Excuse me, road builders. They graded and paved roads to make personal and commercial transport easier than any other time before. Now, they weren't the first people in human history to kind of dig out roads and create paths and, you know, and grate them down and try to pave them, but they were ones that really spent a lot of time trying to perfect it. And so most of the roads that they built, um, most of the roads they built were about 19 to 20 feet wide. They do meters, right? And we're ahead of all the rest of the world. <laughs> Back on the, we're not on the metric systems and the Canadians shake their head at me. Um, but they were about 19, between 19 and 20 feet wide. And what they would do is they'd grate these things to make them level and they would take flat stones and put them across the roads to try to make paved roads so that um, commercial and personal transport and travel was much easier for them. They also connected different important cities and different ports. You know, people would come in and they would have shipments that needed to come from one port to all these major cities and they would begin to build roads between these places. So a major roadway, one of the ma most major roadways 
during that time that connected Italy and Asia was called, it's the next line on your notes, the Ignatian Way. I'll spell that for you. E-G-N-A-T-I-A-N, Ignatian Way. When I saw that, I went, ooh, Ignatian. I'm a redneck from the South. What does Ignatian mean? So I looked it up, and it's very anticlimactic. It's the last name of the Roman uh, politician who ordered the road to be built, Ignatius. So they named it after him, kind of like how we do comets today, right? Like it's really boring for us to name comets, the guy who finds it. Well, this guy ordered the road to be built and was called, his last name was Ignatius, so they named it after the, the Ignatian Way. The only thing was is this particular road was almost 700 miles long. So think about that for a second. No modern technology, no dirt diggers, no asphalt layers, no people, you know, walking behind the, the steamrollers that flattens it out. No, they were hand grading, hand placing these stones 700 miles, 20 feet long to make commercial and personal transport much easier across the northern part um, of Greece and throughout the Roman Empire. Philippi this city of Philippi, and I'm telling you this because Philippi was a major gateway city that was on the Ignatian Way. It was on the route of the Ignatian Way. So think about this for a second. Paul walked the Ignatian Way on some of his missionary journeys. That means, next line on your notes, the Roman Empire, next two words, the Roman Empire literally paved the way for Paul to take the gospel throughout the world. There's a whole message in that that I'll get to one day where all the people who are not serving God are actually doing something that's going to prepare a way for the people of God to walk on and deliver the message. Um, I'll preach on that one day. That's not today, but that would be a good one because I'm kind of getting goosebumps right there. <clears throat> so they literally paved the way for Paul to take the gospel to the world. So during Paul's second missionary journey, he had three of them. Um, it, he didn't really say, this is going to be my missionary journey. We kind of look back on them and say there was a time period that we... We break them into first, second, and third missionary journeys. During his second missionary journey, Paul was traveling with Timothy and Silas. And you can read about this in Acts chapter 16. We're not going to go deep into it tonight. But Paul has a vision. And, he, and there's a man from Macedonia, which is a province of where Philippi and that Greece, that, that the Greece area is. And in his, um, his vision, he hears uh, a man from Macedonia says, please come to Macedonia and help us. He interprets that as God speaking to him. And so he and Timothy and Silas drop what they're doing in the city they're at, which was uh, Troas, if I said that right. And then they just packed up and went to northern Macedonia and, and eventually landed in the city of Philippi. Okay, so that's how they got there. Um, Philippians, uh, so let me back up for a second. The, the, Paul, when Paul left Macedonia, so he's there evangelizing. He's in Philippi. He's in the area. People are coming to Christ. He builds a church, and they have this community of believers, and it becomes very strong, very large, and very robust. And when he leaves to continue his missionary journey, this church in Philippi becomes one of his major supporters. They send him. Uh, the, the Bible's not really specific on what it what it the sub, the word support means. It can be anything from clothes to food to new parchments to write on to money. Whatever it is, they find out where he is, gather up all of the stuff they want to support him with, hand it to somebody, and they go, hey, Dave, uh, I think Paul's over in this city. Go find him, bro. 
and you got to literally no Facebook, no cell phones, no, you know, no, no telegrams, no nothing. Got to go find Paul. So you walk into the city, hey, have you seen this guy, Paul? And that's how they delivered their support to him while he was a missionary. It was just very manual and very laborious. So at this point in time in Philippians, where we are for this particular passage, Paul is, is writing to this Philippian church. It's on this major roadway. They're this major city, had this big military presence. They are um, they're a church that is spreading the gospel for people who are coming between Asia and Europe. These people are getting saved and then going back to where they came from with the gospel. So it was like an incision point on a major artery for the gospel to be shared. It wasn't anything strategic on Paul's end. He didn't look at it and go, oh, this could really be good. It was literally following the direction of the Lord because it was God's plan. So he is now, at this point where he's writing this, he's in prison for sharing the gospel and writing to them. So this, the next line in your notes is, Philippians is one of Paul's four, quote-unquote, prison epistles. That word is prison. The general consensus between uh, theologians and Bible scholars is that Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, you don't have to write those down, but just those four were all written from the prison in Rome by Paul to these people. So they call them the prison epistles because he was in, in prison. So now you've got a little bit of history on Philippi and what's going on. So let's pause right there for a second and remember Paul's life real quick. He started out being named Saul. He was a, a very good persecutor of Christians. He would persecute, he would beat, he would imprison, he would kill. He was present at the very first killing of a Christian that's in the Bible, the first martyr of a Christian, Stephen. He was present when the, the, the religious leaders threw stones at Stephen and until he died, until it hit him in the head long enough with stones, he, they killed him. He was there for that. Paul or Saul was the golden boy. He was the next up and coming young, you know, young, strong back guy who was going to was going to follow the the teachings of the religious law. And he was going to be the one to stamp out this these these uh, heretic Christians. And he was going to chase them down. And he was very, very good at his job. We all remember that as he was that he was as he was on the road to to Damascus, he gets hit by the light. The God shines a light, knocks him off his horse. It blinds him. He says, why are you persecuting me? He, um, he's blind for three days. He gets prayed by him for a man in the, in the town. And the scale, there's like scales that fall off his eyes. And he has a conversion experience where he's saved. Now he wants to go out and tell everybody, oh my gosh, I was wrong. I was wrong. I, I, I want to go out here and instead of persecuting the Christians, I want to join this, this belief system. I want to promote the gospel. And everybody thinks he's lying because of his reputation has spread so wide for how vicious he was and how good he was at dragging Christians out into the open who were in hiding. They're all afraid in that time frame. In that time frame God changes his name from Saul to Paul. Right. And actually what they do here is something that I, I never really knew. Paul doesn't go into the into the mission field right there to start preaching the gospel and evangelizing. The disciples and everyone decide you're causing too much chaos 
go back home. And they literally send Paul back home for a period of time. Now, that period of time is up in debate with some scholars. Some people think it's as little as three to four years and as long as nine, depending on who you read and which Bible lineage you start to follow. Regardless, he's been dropped back off in his hometown after being the golden boy, dropped back off in his hometown for years, sitting there wondering what's next for him until everyone in the region kind of loses the, the fear of Saul, the, the fear that he's going to trick them and try to bring them out and persecute them. They lose that fear after several years. And then the disciples send Barnabas to go get him. They go get him, bring him back and say, we're not sending you to the Jewish people. We're going to send you to all the Gentiles because there's a new thing that they discover God's doing is that the spirit of God is now filling Gentiles. They're becoming believers. So he becomes a missionary and he goes from the hunter to the hunted. He goes from the golden boy of the religious crowd who's being backed by power and authority to a guy who is on his own running around out there trying to tell people about the gospel. And he's multiple times he is imprisoned. He is beaten, he is flogged, he is chased, he is persecuted multiple times. He has gone from one end of the spectrum to the other, and he has experienced the torque that happens when that swing occurs. Do you know what I'm saying? You know what that feels like when you go from the high of one thing to the low of another, and then as you're getting to that low spot, it's almost like the torque of life, the pressure of life is swinging with you to make it even more understandable. Paul is in the middle of this swing. And the next line in your notes is this. He has experienced, Paul has experienced both ends of life's spectrum. <clears throat> both ends. He has been captured and is now in prison. And the Roman prisons are historically despicable, terrible disgusting places. Different historians will tell you rats, rodents, insects, all of these things permeate these prison cells. The, there's, it reeks of human feces because they were, the, the prisoners literally had to go to a corner and use the bathroom and then go to the other corner and sleep in their same cell. It was just the worst possible condition when you think about prisons um, throughout history. There are some that are worse, don't get me wrong, but this is a really, really bad one. This is where we find Paul when he's writing a letter to the Philippians. The Philippian church sends another care package hearing that he's in prison and sends that care package to him. He sees it and he spends the first three chapters of what we call the book of Philemon, or of Philippians. He spends the first three chapters giving them ways they're supposed to live, but also gushing about how much he loves them, gushing about how much he wishes he could go back there and see them. He wants to send a messenger to give a report of what's going on to the ministry to them. And then he wants that messenger to come back and give him a report of what's going on in this church because he is so connected to this church. But here he is with a close relationship. You know how, how you kind of talk different to people who you're really close with? 
you know how you, you have some people who you kind of know and yeah, we're friends, but when you really get with your boys or you really get with your girls, you go, man, this is what's really going on. You kind of let your hair down and you just put away the polished, oh yes, I'm blessed sister. You take all that away and be like, this is killing me. You know what I mean? Like you go, <clears throat> when, you, when you get to somebody that you really know, you kind of let your hair down. This is the people, these are the people that Paul should be letting his hair down with and telling them exactly what's going on. These are the people he should be most honest with. So now from that perspective, we understand a little bit about Philippi. We're reminded where Paul is. Let's look at the words that Paul communicates to this church that he's close with. He lets us in on the inside of what's going on. Okay? Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. Always be full of joy in the Lord. What? What? This guy is getting persecuted, beaten, sitting in that nasty jail, and his, his thing is always be full of joy in the Lord? I say it again, rejoice. <clears throat> Let everyone see that you are considerate in all that you do. Remember the Lord is coming soon, so don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need. Thank Him for all that He has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. His first line is always be full of joy. You know what this tells me? Joy is not dependent upon your circumstance. Joy is not dependent on if things are working the way you wanted them to or not. Joy is not dependent upon physical pain being present at the moment. It's not dependent upon that. Joy happens regardless of your circumstance. The next line in your notes, Paul is a perfect example of a believer in Christ, content, content, no matter the circumstance. <clears throat> to me, he's already kind of blown my mind, right? Like he's already telling them to rejoice and don't worry about nothing as he's sitting in this hole, this disgusting, putrid hole. He already's blowing my mind, but then he takes it a step further. Philippians 4, now verses 8 and 9. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about the things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. There's a 100% chance if this was me sitting in there, that would not have come out of my mouth. There's a 100% chance of that. How in the world is he sitting there telling people, hey, think about the good. Think about what's pure. Think about what's lovely. Think about what's admirable. Fix your mind. He's telling them you position your thoughts on these things. How in the world is he doing that? If these are the people he's letting his hair down to, talking about what's really inside of him, the people he has a deep affection and relationship for, this tells me that what's coming out of his mouth is not him trying to be good and trying to keep on that front and trying to lead the people. No, 
This is what's really inside him. This is what's really inside him. Because I don't know about you, but adversity shows what's really inside of me. Struggle shows what's really in Matt's heart. And when that struggle comes, and all of a sudden that lashing out comes, and that words I don't want to repeat again come out, or that thoughts that I say, things I don't want to say again come out, all of a sudden I got to use, there's something in there that when the moment of adversity hits, this is what he does? My thoughts would have been, uh, why am I here? Uh, what did I do to deserve this, God? How is this fair? Where is the justice that I've been hearing about, thinking about, praying for? Uh, is this what happens when I serve you? Those are Matt's thoughts. But Paul, in one of the most horrendous conditions imaginable, with every right to have questions, tells the church in Philippi to fix their thoughts on, next two lines of your notes, God and His goodness. Tells them to fix their thoughts on God and His goodness. <clears throat> this is the part <clears throat> that I really wanted to, I, I'm re I really want to get to tonight. Philippians 4, verses 10 through 14. How I praise the Lord that you, the church in Philippi, are concerned about me again. I know you've always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I now know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Even so, you have done well to share with me in my present difficulty. Sometime in the future, I'm going to do a sermon series on the most misused uh, quotes, scriptures in the Bible. This is going to be one of the first ones I deal with because it is one of the most abused sentences from scripture, I, hands down, I guarantee you. It's not the most, but I, I guarantee it's one of the most. <clears throat> what we have to remember is that when Paul is writing these letters, and when any of these books of the Bible were written, they were written in one piece. He wrote them in one piece. It was one letter. The breakdown of chapters didn't happen until the 12th or 13th century. So for 1,200 years, Anyone who read these read them in their entirety. There was no chapter breakdown. The breakdown of verses didn't happen for another one to 200 years until like the 14th or 15th century in that time frame. Maybe even up to the 16th century. But every Bible that was printed after the 16th century all have the chapter and verse breakdown. Now, there's a good part of that because we can sit here today and say, Turn to Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. We can all be at the same page real quick. When you're studying things, it's easier to find them. And so there are some benefits to having chapter and verses, but there's another side of the coin. There's also a negative drawback. Because as our culture gets further and further away 
from the original and further and further away from the true biblical understanding that we were never that there was never chapter and verses you find people looking at scripture as if they're tweetable comments 280 characters that i can just grab and apply to whatever i want to it's almost like they're the little lines in a fortune cookie break it open and just hey i can do all things through christ who strengthens me no you can't what do you mean the scripture line no it's out of context what do you mean I can't do everything? Stand on my roof and fly home. Jump off and fly home. And say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength and flap your arms and see what happens when you hit the ground. Well, is, it a, is, it a, is he lying? No, it's context. I, I heard, a, <laughs> heard a, guy of a, sto- a story of a guy who went to a boxing match and the, the boxers came out, you know, they're doing a big old intro music and he looked at one of the guys on the left as he was entering the ring and he had it on his boxer trunks on the waist it had Philippians 4.13. And he lost the match by knockout. He got knocked out. He's on the canvas like this, just laid out, Philippians 4.13. He's like, it was so embarrassing. He's like, I do all things through Christ except beat this guy, right? <laughs> so what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say you just can't pick out these things, and we try to do that here. We tried to read passages of Scripture to give some context about what's going on. This is not a statement here of him saying you can do all things through Christ so that you can apply this thing to whatever selfish ambition and motive you have to go after something that God never orchestrated you because you're a believer and say, oh, I can do this because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Uh Uh-uh, that don't work. What happens is he's saying, you you, you read it, I read it. It doesn't matter if I have a lot. Or a little. I have learned the secret to life that whether my belly is full or empty, doesn't matter where I'm at, if I have everything, if I'm on top of the world or at the bottom of this prison, disgusting hole, I can make it through anything because there is a God who gives me strength because I believe in his son. You can make it through anything. We cannot be people who take these little scriptures and slap them on things and be like, yeah, man, and get a bunch of likes on Instagram and lead people down a road of thinking they can do whatever they want. They can't. Their life has to be in submission to God, and then he provides the strength to sustain through whatever circumstance comes our way. <clears throat> the next line in your notes, a statement I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength is an admission that no matter if I have much or little, much or little, if I'm hungry or fed, I will make it through because of the strength Christ gives his children. Paul is telling the church in Philippi and all of us from that nasty prison with great joy to rejoice, keep our minds focused on those things pleasing to God, and God will give us strength to make it through both times of great abundance and great lack. I don't know about you, but um, I'm going to tell you a story before we wrap up our message here tonight. Um, I don't know about you, but reading the stories of the Bible, I have to remind myself this is not just a story. These are real people. Paul had to sit there all day 
in the same place over and over and over again, week after week after week, laying there on the ground thinking, I've been shipwrecked, bitten by snakes, chased all over the place. He's got to lay there just like we would have to lay there. It's a very real thing. I have to remind myself that these are not just <clears throat> stories that were passed down and you know, kind of embellished and just trying to give a point. No, these are historical accounts of real people serving a real God going through real scenarios. <clears throat> but when I experience someone right now, today, in my own lifetime, that experiences something that's catastrophic and responds the correct way, it makes it come even more alive to me. <clears throat> I was a youth pastor for a little while in Florida before I moved out to here to Phoenix to attend a ministry training program. And I was green. Like, I know I'm like marshmallow white, but I was green like on my experience, right? Like, I was green. I had, like, I, I was doing a couple of correspondence courses, you know, I was a youth pastor that I don't know. I mean, I just finished an internship program and they're like, you come on over here and be with our youth pastor. I'm like, oh, great. So I'm one of the youth pastors on the staff at this church. And it was a lot of fun and it was, you know, a lot of learning for me. And uh, one day I got a phone call at the church from a family that I knew who had a daughter in the youth group where I was. And they said, hey, we have a friend that we want you to go see, if you wouldn't mind, we want you to go see her at the hospital. Her name is Gail. And I said, oh, sure. And I remember her name because of the impact of the story and because Gail's my mom's middle name. So I've heard it most of my, my life growing up, right? So Gail, um, she's in the hospital. And, they tell, and I say, okay, which hospital? And they, when I, and they got me to agree to go and then told me at the end, oh, it's the mental hospital. And I said... You want me to go meet a person I've never met, an 18-year-old, inexperienced, three months of ministry experience here at the church. You want me to go meet this lady in her mid-40s that I know nothing about? Yeah. There's other people that work here, man. Like, <laughs> done this longer than me, you know. Like, they probably can understand. I, I can recommend you to three of them right now. <clears throat> no, we want you to go see her. So I went and talked to the senior pastor. I'm like, what do I do? He's like, man, go down there, see her, listen to what she has to say, and, you know, pray for her, invite her to church, whatever you want to, you know, whatever you feel like the Lord's speaking to you, just, just go do it. And I said, all right, man. <laughs> if this goes south, I'm going to tell him he sent me. He told me to go. And so um, Gail had been through uh, an insanely traumatic uh, time, and I had no clue. Gail, um, I found out later, um, she'd been married for about 19 or 20 years, right in that range, and she had a 17-year-old son. The 17-year-old son uh, was uh, just their pride and joy, right? He was their only child. He was kind of their world, and they weren't really believers in Christ. They were just trying to be good people and good family, and they lived in this kind of subdivision that had a very odd way to get into it. There was a two-lane road, and it was one lane north and one lane south. And you just drove down the road and it was long and straight. And I drove down the road myself so I can visualize it even talking about it right now. And they did a very weird thing. Whoever built this street needed to talk to the people in Rome, right? Because this was a bad one. 
they, they, it went down and it immediately made this hard left turn. These two lane, just a one lane in one direction, one lane in another. So it was doing north and south and all of a sudden it's like a, you just took a stick and broke it like this. It was literally that sharp of a turn. And then it went one lane east, one lane west. And I remember driving down it myself and thought, man, how in the world can you navigate this? Well, Gail's son was very familiar with the road. So he knew how to navigate it. But the person driving his opposite direction didn't. Came across the middle line, hit the car, and tragically, Gail's 17-year-old son died in that accident. She was obviously devastated. It was a shock. You know, you've given everything to your child, your kid. You know, I, I can't even imagine what's that like to have to go and bury your own child. I'm a father of an 18-year-old, so I mean, like, it's, it, it, I, I can't even fathom that. You know, your kids are supposed to bury you, not the other way around, right? <clears throat> and they went through a tremendously hard time her and her husband, and they made it through it. And one of the, th one of the ways they made it through it was her son and her husband, um, before, before her son passed, they were into very old cars. And they liked to restore them. And their pride and joy was a 1934 Ford truck. And I don't know if you've seen one of these, but go home and Google it. Not right now, but go home and Google it and look at the car. It's just gorgeous. It's an old truck. And they just, they, re they redid the entire thing. And we were living 15 minutes from the beach, so the sea breeze was causing all the, muddle, the, 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 the metal to rust. And it was just, they, they really put so much time and effort into it. It was their pride and joy. They would take it to car shows, and they painted it pearl white and called it Casper because there was an old cartoon called Casper the Friendly Ghost, and it's kind of that same <coughs> color, so they nicknamed it after, after that cartoon. And so they had the 1934 Ford truck, and it was just amazing. Was well, a tribute to their son, and one of the things they wanted to do after their son passed is they hired a professional painter who went into their garage and stenciled their son's face on the side of that car. <laughs> they wanted to make sure that when they took it places that they were remembering, uh, they're they're you know remembering their son and and memorializing him with however they could and trying to tell people the perils of traffic accidents and driving safely and. So um, they had made it through this tough time, and about eight or nine months later, Gail's best friend was coming out of her office on the beach. She was going for lunch, and she walked out of the office, and there's a whole bunch of tourist businesses down there, hotels, a lot of things down there, and, and she looked across the road, and she said, is that Gail's husband? And if it is, who is that woman he's with. So she sat back and just kind of watched for a little while thinking it may be a business partner or maybe a business lunch or something. And after they started being very affectionate with each other, she realized this was a, not a business relationship, but a romantic one. She's obviously very upset for her friend. So <clears throat> what does any good best friend do? Goes up there and confronts the guy, right? So she rolls up on him and is like, Hey, what are you doing? And they have an altercation and we'll just leave it at that. And she says, she calls him out. She understands what he's doing. And she asks him a question at the end of their argument and says, does Gail know what you've, that you're having an affair? He just kind of looks at her silently and he goes, well, I'm going to take that as a no. And 
you've got till five o'clock to call her because I will be calling her at five o'clock when she gets off work and I will be telling her everything that's going on. I'm going to give you a chance to man up and do what's right and tell her yourself. Her best friend counts the minutes through the next few hours. At the strike of five o'clock, she picks up the phone and calls Gail's office and gets her on the phone before she heads home and says, hey, what you doing? Just headed home. What's going on? Her best friend asks Gail, uh, have you talked to your husband today? Like, well, I saw him this morning when I left for work. I mean, like, we had coffee and stuff at breakfast. Like, have you heard from him this afternoon? Nope. So her best friend does the right thing, but the hard thing, and lets Gail know what she saw. Gail is completely blindsided by this. Obviously, she has no clue this is going on. She says, I'm going to go home and figure this out because there's obviously some crazy mix-up. I mean, we've just buried my son. You know, we've done this thing with the truck. We're, we're, we've made it through all of this. I mean, I, I, there has to be an explanation. I'm just going to go home and find him. He's always home right before I am, a few minutes before I am. He'll be there. I'll just go talk to him, and I'll let you know how it goes, but this, this can't be right. She drives home, pulls in the driveway, opens the door and calls out for her husband, and this time there's no response. Turns on all the lights in the house and realizes that everything is disheveled. Things are knocked over. They're messy. It's not how they left the house. And she is trying to figure out what's going on. And so she runs to the bedroom and finds that the husband, instead of calling her and telling her what's going on, has stuffed all of his things in a bag, packed up everything he owned, threw it in the car, and took off. One of the ways they made it through the loss of their son was they took pictures of their family and blew them up, put them on the house, all over the house and frames and everything. And to add insult to injury, before he left, he went through and took every single picture they had of their family and their son with him and left all the empty frames around the house. After looking and seeing all this and it hitting her and her trying to com you know, compute what is going on here? It starts to sink into her what's really happening and what her friend has told her is actually the truth. And then she thought, oh my God. She ran to the garage, opened it up. Cherry on the top of her day is Casper's gone. Took the truck, the pictures, all his stuff, left with no warning none at this point she has been through repeated heartbreak after heartbreak after heartbreak she's cried herself to sleep with her son she has gone through all of this impossible scenario so she's like okay no more pain i'm done she runs to her medicine cabinet pulls out an entire month's bottle of, of uh, blood pressure meds swallows all of them and finds the stiffest vodka she's got in the liquor cabinet to wash it down it's like i'm just going to end it right now I'm going to end my life. She calls her friend and says, hey, what you said is true. I just got home, explains everything to her. And she's like, I just want to tell you goodbye. I've been a great friend and I love you. <clears throat> As she becomes incoherent on the phone, 
and Gail eventually passes out. Her friend realizes what's happening, hangs up the phone, calls 911, and the ambulance gets there just in time, pump her stomach, save her life. In the city I was living in, they had a mandatory they had a mandatory law that if you tried to commit suicide, and it was evident that you tried to commit suicide, they put you in a mental institution for a certain number of days, depending on the degree of severity of what you did. This is the point. I met Gail. I walked into this mental institution not knowing any of that. All the people who were in there were in these like bathrobes and matching fuzzy slippers. It was odd. <clears throat> and they walked around and sat me at a table. And I said, I'm here to see Gail and signed in. And they sat me there and they said, we'll bring her to you. And she walked out, not knowing why I was there. Just know that from her friends, I want to have somebody to come talk to you. I sat down and I don't know if you've ever heard the word speechless before, but I was the definition of it at that moment. <clears throat> I had no clue what to say. And if you don't know what to say, <coughs> maybe you shouldn't say anything, but I did not follow that rule. And this was my opening line. She sat down, hi, you're Matt. I'm like, yeah, you're Gail, yeah. So what's going on? What, I mean, like, what, what are you here for? And I just looked at her. So, how you doing? <laughs> hey, that's what, <laughs> that's what that, that's how I feel right now, even thinking about it. Oh, God, how you doing? And she goes, what? And she looks around at the medical doctors are walking around, the mental doctors, all these patients. She looks around, how am I doing? And she goes, oh, that's it? That's how you start? And she busted up laughing. And I started laughing. I was like, I'm sorry. I, had, I, don't, I don't know anything. <laughs> and, and she started laughing. I started laughing and kind of took the tension down in the room. And, she, and I said, I, I did, we have some mutual friends. They wanted me to come see you. And I heard you're going through a hard time. And so I'm just here to see, check on you. <laughs> and I almost said it again. And she sat there and she said, she began to tell me all the things I just told you about her family. I sat there in shock, stunned, had nothing to say, but I am so sorry. This is horribly tragic, but I want you to know your life is worth something. Jesus died for you. It's all in his word. And it's all I got. I'd like to pray for you before I go. If you want to come to church, um, I'd love to, we'd love to host you. If somebody come get you. I mean, the van doesn't have any air, but we can come get you. <laughs> and and the AG church. And so, um, so the van doesn't have any air, but, you know, we can come get you. And she said, okay, well, thank you. I know I've done something stupid and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And she kind of let it go and. I left, and my next thought was, I'll never see her again. Three weeks later, she walked in the door of our church. Sat there and heard the gospel for weeks. And after a few weeks, stood up, walked down to the front, answered an altar call, 
got saved and gave her life to the Lord. She would go down every week after that for prayer, and me and a couple of staff members just routinely, like, oh, Gail's going down there. Let's go down and pray for her, you know, and we would just go down and pray for her. And after several weeks, she turned to me and said, Matt, do you believe God can do anything? My first thought was, look at you. Like, God can do anything. Like, through all the tragedy and stuff you've been through, and now you're here after trying to kill yourself and save your life. Oh, my gosh. Yes, God can do anything. <clears throat> and she goes, I believe that, too. I've been reading in the Bible that you guys gave me in about faith and believing in God. And so I'm going to pray, and I want you to pray and uh, pray with me for something. And I said, okay. You name it. I'll pray with you. She goes, I want you to pray my husband gets saved. I thought, I don't know if I could do that. Personally, if I was in her shoes. And I said, absolutely. Every person needs Jesus. I'll pray. And she goes, and then when he finds the Lord, I want us to pray one more thing. It's okay. Then he'll restore my marriage. Okay, Gail. I'll do it. I'll pray with you. Every Sunday she'd walk down there. We'd pray for her husband. He'd find the Lord. And they'd, God would restore their marriage every Sunday. <clears throat> a couple of months later, I was at my favorite barbecue spot, which was in Florida. And my family called me from there today to let me know they were eating there. And I wasn't, which I was not happy about. But <clears throat> <clears throat> and it was video. So they videoed all the food and sent it to me. So I'll deal with y'all later. Um, <clears throat> but I was sitting in my favorite barbecue spot, and to let you know how old the story is and how, I almost said how old I am, but well, I'm too late, how old I am, is uh, I was sitting at lunch, and my pager went off, and I borrowed a quarter from my friend to go to the payphone, <laughs> to the payphone to call because somebody put 911 at the, end of the, at the end of the number, and I knew it was an emergency, right? If you don't know what um, pagers or, or, you know, like pay phones are, you're a child. Um, just kidding. Google it. You'll, it it's, they're ancient things. You'll never see them again. Um, but I called the number, and on the other end of the phone were the same friends who introduced me to Gail. They said, hey, man, where are you at? And I said, Sonny's. They're like, oh, okay, you're not too far from where Gail lives. And I'm like, well, I don't know where she lives. She's like, well, send you, here's the address. So I wrote it down. And I said, we want you to come by here and see Gail. And I said, oh, okay, is everything all right? I mean, is she feeling okay? And they're like, um, she doesn't know this, but um, her husband died of a massive heart attack last year. And I said, What? Yeah, he was living with that girl that he left her for, and she woke up in the, mo in the morning, and he had had a massive heart attack, and he died. They'd taken him in. She had to fill out the paperwork because she was still his legal relative. And I sat there, and I said, why are you calling me? Like, like man, Gail, she prays with you all the time talks about how the Lord used you to help her bring the church and stuff, know the Lord, so we want you to get here and call her, and or we want you to get you here soon before she gets home from work and tell her. 
I remember running back and paying the bill and jumping in the van. And the guy who I was with, I told him, and he was just stunned, just silent. And he goes, what are you going to say? And I said, bro, I got nothing. And I would like to tell you at that moment I cried out to the Lord, and, and I did ask him for what he was going to say. But full disclosure, I was a little bit upset. And I said, God, I am about to walk into a dumpster fire. This woman is going to look at me, and she's going to be, where is your God? Why did we even pray? She's not just going to give it to me. She's going to give it to me both barrels, and I got nothing. I'm not wearing this, man. Your word is the thing that said pray and believe and ask and hope for all these things. All I'm doing is following what your word says and trying to tell her and encourage her to do what your word says. And then this happens? Dude, what, what am I supposed to tell her, number one? But what is she going to think about you after all this? I mean, this is like worse than worse. Gail made it to her house before I got there. Saw all of her friends waiting outside. And they all went inside and she said, why are all you guys here? What's going on? And they said, well, Matt's coming. We want him to talk to you. And she goes, why is Matt coming? Is there something the matter? And she pushed and pushed and pushed on them and they eventually just told her. I made it into the driveway and out of the car, out of the door of the car, just in time enough to hear her scream a sound I won't forget. I ran through the garage and the back door that was open to find her curled up in the corner of her kitchen, laid up against the cabinets, weeping, crying. Her groceries that she was carrying and all over the floor. And I sat there and was blank. Oh my God, oh my God, what am I gonna tell this lady? I don't even know how long she sat there and cried, but they eventually got her up off the floor and moved her to her dining room table where she sat at the end of the table and said, she sat there and she just, I don't believe this. I don't believe this. Why? You know, she's going through all this stuff and she composes herself and I'm just standing there waiting for it, knowing that it's coming. She turns and looks at me and says, Matt. I was like, here we go. I don't know why this happened to you. I'm thinking in my mind, I don't know what to say. I don't have a scripture. I am blank, blank, blank. Looks at me and says, Matt, thank God I have Jesus. Because I don't know what I would do with that. And I said, you're right. There's a 1% of me that was relieved and 99% that was convicted. Church kid, Bible his whole life, pray before he goes to bed his whole life, go to service every time the doors are open, tent meeting, camp meeting. I went every youth group thing. I did it all. Prayer meetings, had a Bible, read it, marked it up. Some lady who's been saved six months taught me what it's really like to really 
be content with Jesus. The last line on your notes is that statement. It's called Gail's, Gail's statement. Gail's quote, Thank God I have Jesus. What would I do right now without him? As we enter the last part of this year, there is going to be a massive temptation um, for everybody. It's a growing trend that we've seen for for many years. There's going to be a growing trend for people in a time that should be filled with joy, celebrating the birth of Christ, you know, Thanksgiving, the freedom of our country, all these things. There's a very real, real thing of where this joyous occasion turns to depression. It turns down. It turns sad. It turns into a hole when it should be a peak. Some people... They go see their family and they get all happy and then they leave and they get all sad. Some people go see their family and they're sad and they leave and they get all happy. <clears throat> Some people watch Instagram really close and go, my family doesn't look like that. I remember the first Christmas I had, Thanksgiving I had after my dad passed. It was 15 years ago, and I can still remember the first one without him and just went, he's not here. There are so many different scenarios where we can, very real scenarios where we can look and go, what's the point, man? tempted to isolate, to pull back, not reach out to your community, your family, community of believers. It's going to be a real temptation to do that. But before you sink, or you're tempted to sink, or you're tempted to compare your life versus whoever they are, your family versus whatever the perfect family that you think is, your scenario, the way your life played out, your job, your career, your house, fill in the blank of whatever the thing is that you just feel like I'm kind of pulling me down. I know how to live on almost nothing. Be content with whatever I have. I've lived with almost nothing in it or and everything. And I've learned the secret to living in every situation. Whether with the full stomach or empty, plenty or little, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And in a more current version, thank God I have Jesus. What would I do? What I want to do today, and what I felt very strongly about, is laying in front of you and hopefully putting in your hand and equipping you with a tool. If you 
are at the high celebration time. This is your time of year and you are going for it and things are great and there's Christmas music 24-7. I can't come to your house, but if, you, if it's there, then you know it's all the time and you're, and you're at this apex and you're at this peak. You are there because God has orchestrated things to give you strength at this point in time. Where would you be without Jesus? If you're at a low, there's something in your life that you're not happy with, you're not, you're not sure how it got that way, you're, you're, you're looking at it and going, man, I, I, everyone else seems kind of high, or I've been at that apex before, but now it's low. Where would you be without Jesus? You are sustaining through this moment because of the strength of Christ that he has given to you, and that is the true definition of you can do anything. You can make it through any scenario. Why? Because Christ will give you strength. Sometimes that strength is you praying and saying, God, I just need you. Sometimes that strength is picking up the phone and calling somebody, maybe somebody in this room, and going, hey, man, I'm struggling right now. Get your butt over here to my house and let's go to coffee encouraging you, praying for you somewhere, some way, shape, or form. Whatever that way is, do it. Because it is the provision of God for strength from Him and through each other.